Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 165, and on today's show, Jared is going solo all by himself, talking to Brian Cartarello from Dockyard about betting the company on Elixir and Ember. Good show. We have three awesome sponsors, Codeship, Code School, and HipChat. Our first sponsor is Codeship. They launched a brand new feature called Organizations. Now you can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. Maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with Codeship's new organization plan. You can save 20% off any premium plan you choose for the next three months by using the code The Change Law Podcast. Again, that code is The Change Law Podcast. 20% off any premium plan you choose for three months. Head to codeship.com slash the change law to get started. And now on to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Jared here. I am fresh off of our trip to Denver for GopherCon 2015. I just want to give a quick shout out to all of our new Gopher friends and listeners. And trust me, we lined up a ton of Go-related shows in our pipeline. More on that later, but we had tons of fun handing out t-shirts and shooting video interviews with everybody. In fact, if you're wondering where is the mellifluous voice of Adam Stack, he's actually heads down in the editing room this week, turning all of our raw footage from the conference into something awesome. But don't worry, Adam will be back next week, and we will welcome Toby Knopp, who is the CTO of Mesosphere to the show. Stay tuned for that. But today, I'm joined by Brian Cartarella, who is the CEO of Dockyard. Dockyard is a web and mobile user experience consultancy in Boston, Massachusetts. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So did I do you justice in the intro? Anything else you want to say about yourself um, as a way of introduction? Uh, no, that's it. I'm sure we'll touch on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, I think I was thinking back of when you first came across my radar and uh, in the open source world. And I think it was with your client side validations gem. Yeah. Which, which uh, for those who don't know, was a Ruby gem. And I think it was probably only in the context of Rails, um, which purpose was to give us the ultimate kind of dry uh, validations where you define them once in your models. And then we can actually like traverse them down into, uh, I think, probably jQuery back then into validations in the client side right so it will allow you to write them once they'd export actually there was some before i even knew uh what transpilation was yeah. it kind of did some ruby to javascript transpilation really really bad right um but it's interesting because client side of validations has kind of was my first like use case for how i've been writing code over the next few years so like client side validations was uh, what motivated me to want to get more heavily interested in client-side application development and specifically um, something as uh, complex as Ember. Yeah, I mean, I remember with the gem, because that gem came out and, and it spoke to me very, uh, very tight, like inherently. I was like, yes, this is something that we need, something that I know I needed. Um, and so I started using it and I think I can't remember if I contributed back. I definitely did some bug reports for you, for you back in the day. Yeah. And it seemed like uh, a great goal, but it just was a difficult thing for you to achieve. I think it I think it was working well, but there were a lot of issues 
Um, did you struggle to actually like execute on that idea? Uh, well, the way that I that I wrote it originally, yes. Yeah. So what client side validations was doing under the hood was that it was trying to uh, attach all these validation rules to input elements, and it was basing it off of string values, and then there was all this you know crazy rules on the back end. Uh, oh, sorry, I mean within the library, not on the back end. Right. Um, and that's not even taking account of like remote client side validations. The the, the uniqueness validator was a whole mess. Yep. Uh, but what I came to realize pretty early on, and this is what I mentioned how I got became interested in Ember, was that mm-hmm. uh, client side validations really needed a model to work against. It needed like a like a like a user model or something where you're actually going against specific values rather than just trying to piecemeal all these values off of input elements. And so when I was uh, uh, building on client-side validations, I actually went down the path. I don't know if the, if the branch still exists on the repo, mm-hmm. um, but it, I still went down the path of building out a very, very small and probably very poorly thought out like client-side framework just for re-implementing client-side validations. And I got to the point where like, this is crazy. I'll start looking the backbone. Um, mm-hmm. Backbone didn't really interest me. And, that's where Ember was starting to get on my radar, and I, I went off in that direction. And then I realized that um, uh, this whole, at least for me, the nature of server-side application development um, was really, I think, going to fall by the wayside, and client-side application development was going to be the next big thing. And so for someone yeah. that's running a, a business, I really wanted to get ahead of that curve and start establishing expertise there. So I kind of dropped client-side validations off of my plate. Sorry for those that were using it. Um, <laughs> I, I did do do I did due diligence to try to find a replacement uh, author. Mm-hmm. Um, I put the radar. I, I I maintained it for like six months. I asked people if they wanted to take it over. Didn't get any takers, and so I finally sunset it. However, I think someone has taken it over now. Okay. I gave somebody. I, I don't know if they're still working on it, but yeah. I uh, I gave them some of uh, the Ruby Gems access and. They own the repo now, so um, hopefully it's found a good home. But uh, yeah, that that was always an interesting project from mm-hmm. a, um, a technical point of view of trying to get Ruby over to JavaScript, but also from a, a the point of view of okay, I realized that this is the completely wrong direction for implementing this, mm-hmm. and it's kind of taken me on this crazy journey to to really becoming very well versed in client side application development. Yeah, and I think uh, as we, you know, as this conversation progresses, we'll probably take that journey a little bit. I want to uh, also mention something that you do annually, which I've been a fan of over the years. Um, you know, we just met, but uh, I've been kind of following Dockyard to a degree because I'm also a, a consultant. Uh, you know, I have a, a software company, you know, employee number one. Uh, and I've always flirted with growing and, and not growing and the ideas behind it. Um, so I follow other people that are doing that. I follow ThoughtBot to a degree and, and Dockyard and just kind of watch, you know, like to watch what you're doing. And you make that really easy because you you publish this lessons learned post annually, um, which is kind of a year in review. It's kind of the the entire life of your, your consultancy. Um, and man, you're like crazy transparent in that post. Like, I feel like you just kind of bear it all there. And I'm curious yeah. uh, why you do that, and and just have you talk about that. So, several reasons. Um, first, I think it's just in my nature. I tend to 
I guess, wearing my emotions and myself on my sleeve to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I think anyone that follows me on Twitter kind of gets too much of that <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> I do a lot of Twitter complaining because I think that's the, the primary purpose of Twitter is just to like complain Surround. about things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, but the other reason, which is probably a more, um, like politically correct thing to, to, to say rather is that, um, when I was getting going with Dockyard, when I, when I was, cause I was a freelancer, I, mm-hmm. I, I worked in enterprise, I worked in startups and I, I, I finally had it with that world. And I said, I'm going to work for myself. And I, I went and started freelancing and I, very quickly realized that I've really traded one boss for like, you know, 10 or 20 bosses. Exactly. Yeah. Whoever, however many you happen to have during a given year. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not really any more freeing. Uh, but I started getting, um, more and more complex projects pushed my way. Mm -hmm. Stuff that required more than just me. So I reached out to a few people and, uh, we just, we were working on a project. We worked well together. We decided, okay, well, let's give this a shot and start a company. At the time, my LLC was uh, horribly named. It was Dirty Water Development. Uh, for those that Dirty are from water. Boston, yeah, yeah. So for those that are from Boston and that are Red Sox fans, that's the song that the Red Sox play. The Standells love that Dirty Water. Uh. Yeah, it, it's a it's a um, reference that went over everybody's head. Nobody got it, <laughs> yeah. especially in in light of when I when I was doing business mm-hmm. under that LLC was when the Gulf oil spill happened. Oh and no. So everybody thought that this was somehow a tongue in cheek reference to the Gulf oil spill, which was not the case. So I, uh, I think I realized very quickly that this was a bad name. Um, and I'm a, I, I race sailboats. I want to do something nautical. So I, I really do want shipyard because I'm like, Oh, shipyard, shipping, shipping software. That makes right, sense. Right. However, there is a shipyard bear, uh, beer in Maine, and they own that domain name. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and so Dockyard was the, uh, the next, next obvious choice for me. And to, to go back to your original question, I, I started, when I was starting the company, I was starting from zero, right? I've never run a company before. Um, I grew up in a family, like my father ran his own company, my grandfather ran his own company, but uh, very different businesses. Uh, so I kind of got a sense of what it takes to um, like the effort that goes into running a company. But as far as the specifics around running a software consultancy, I really had no one to ask. I emailed a few people that were doing it. And what I realized very fast is that a lot of these shops are, they're just BSing people. They're lying. They're, they're saying everything's great. Everything's awesome because they feel that they have to put forth this image of excellence. Mm-hmm. And anytime that there is anything that's negative about them out there, they fear that they're going to lose out on a contract. They're going to lose out on an employee. They're going to lose out on anything. And so they, they just say, everything's great. Everything's awesome all the time. And I don't think that people learn from people's successes because I think success is fleeting. Success is very difficult to duplicate. Uh, it's usually time-based. It's luck-based. You happen to be fortunate enough that you're in the right place at the right time and things worked out for you. That's, I think, the significant key to success sometimes. Effort and persistence is definitely part of that. But persistence actually just means that you're able to stick it out long enough so that you get lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, failures are super easy to duplicate. Failures happen all the time. And the way that you fail is probably very similar to the way that I fail. And telling me how you failed will allow me to help 
cope with and avoid that particular failure or at least minimize damage. And nobody wanted to talk about their failures. So I, I decided early on that um, if we can make it to one year, I actually, I think I did the first one after six months. And I wanted to share those lessons with people because I didn't see those lessons anywhere else. Uh, they were more of a cathartic thing for me. And uh, I, I wasn't sure if anybody would like them, but they, te- they tend to uh, get a lot of attention. Um, I think that annually they're definitely the most read blog posts, at least at the time when I published them. Uh, yeah. We have some uh, Ember posts that I think overall have got more more traffic. But um, yeah, I, I kind of I, I talk about what went well, what didn't go well, what changes we can make in the upcoming year. I talk about how much money we've made. I, I, it's stupid not to talk about money, right? It, it, people don't like to share like their revenue. They don't like to share their their rates. I don't know why. Maybe, yeah. maybe there's a, like a really good business school reason not to do it, but I didn't go to business school. It's never hurt us in any way. Um, and I really wouldn't want to run a company that we wouldn't be able to talk about these type of things. I, if we end up losing, if we end up doing worse one year, yeah, it will be embarrassing to say that we didn't make as much money this year as we did last year, but that's, you know, ultimately that lies upon me and I need to own that. Mm-hmm. So do you... Where do you draw the line? Do you have a line? Do you have you thought about that, or do you just uh, bear it all, whatever, whatever you feel like saying in those kind of posts? Or are they if it if it impacts one of my employees directly or mm-hmm. a former employee, uh, it won't be brought up unless I've discussed it with them already. Gotcha. So a good example of that, um, I've discussed firing people, and um, one of the employees specifically was actually one of the co-founders of the company. And everyone hears this word firing and they think, oh, that's a, you know, that's bad. But it's what it is. Like, we didn't lay them off. We didn't dismiss them. They were fired. And there's no two ways around it. Um, and I discussed it with him. I said, I, I want to discuss this within this given context in that, you know, perhaps in this case, I was wrong. Uh, I I did not, you know, adequately set. So, so within that, for that specific person, I, I spoke about how... Uh, what ended up happening was when we co-founded the company, we never set expectations upon people's roles and everything kind of fell upon me and I was getting frustrated. And I think the lesson learned there was that when you're starting a company, you should probably not even uh, amongst your co-founders, not even split up uh, ownership percentage until maybe six months in when you get a sense on like, okay, here's what people are really doing. Because Mm -hmm. beforehand you can dream up like, oh, you're going to do this. I'll do that. And then reality sets in, people will really own up to what the responsibilities are. You probably wait until that point in time before you decide, okay, this person's doing way more work than me. Perhaps this, should, perhaps my ownership percentage should be different than theirs. And uh, that ownership percentage wasn't necessarily part of the problem there. It was more that I never really had expectations upon people beyond just development. And I should have set those expectations. So the failing was my my failure. I think uh, most of the firings that we've had at Dockyard have been my failure, with the exception of one or two. Um, and that's me learning how to run a business. And I've gotten much better at it. I've gotten much better at, uh, I guess, being very clear with employees. Like, here is your role. Here's your expectations. Here's how you get to the next level, or maybe I'm not as clear as I think I am. Perhaps my employees would think differently, but yeah. I think we're always working on it and trying to get better. 
So a good example of that is uh, we actually created an RFP process for Dockyard. It's an open public process. Anyone can view, I guess, participate. But we, we have one RFP that we've brought in so far. We actually have one RFP we've ever opened. If you mm-hmm. go to Dockyard slash RFPs, I think it's plural, on uh, GitHub, you can see it. And this was around the career life cycle of an employee at Dockyard, how they can move up, what are the expectations there, what incentives they had have tied to bonuses. Because every year we actually, we just put this in place. So we would always have, everyone gets $1,000 at the end of the year, regardless of what they've done. Uh, if you were here for half the year, it's prorated to 50%. And what we realized is that, hey, this we might as well just increase everybody's salary by $1,000. This is not really an incentive. And so we we, uh, we determined a bunch of um, uh, activities or events or things that people can be doing that will benefit Docker in some way. So if you go speak at a conference, if you speak at a meetup, if you're writing blog posts, if you're doing something that's helping the marketing of the company in some way, uh, this will be this will be calculated as part of a bonus at the end of the year. And it was never clear to people like what are those things. So we created this RFP uh, in order to do that. So crazy amount of openness, I yeah. think, is a good thing. Um, and we're always looking for ways to be more open. Yeah. Well, I mean, just as an observer and somebody who, you know, casually observes your openness over the years, I appreciate it because I draw insights from your trials and tribulations and your successes mm-hmm. and um, and have kind of been able to track, you know, the, the struggles of, of a software company. Or I guess now you've you guys have kind of, focused in on, you know, web and mobile experience company, but you've traditionally been an engineering company that's bigger yep. than I am. And like thinking, should I try that? Should I not? You know? And so it's, it's fun from that perspective. I've also been following along, uh, tech, you know, technically with a technology bent and just watching mm-hmm. because I'm very interested in staying relevant and, um, you know, keeping up with open source, which is, you know, change logs, uh, mission, helping people do that. Yep. Um, and so I've watched you over the years make certain decisions. Uh, I think that the Ember decision was a while back. Um, but then most recently, the one that kind of surprised me or maybe even just imp- was impressed upon me that I remembered it was in May of this year, 2015, uh, you guys kind of relaunched uh, the new dockyard.com uh, mm-hmm. website, which is very well put together, by the way. But uh, you had a kind of intro post. And in that post, on your guys' blog, you wrote this. You said, this new website is also built how we believe modern web applications should be built with Ember.js on the front end and Phoenix on the back end. Um, I want to focus on that decision kind of for the remainder of the show. We Uh were, as I said, we were kind of at GopherCon last week. Not kind of, we were at GopherCon last week. (laughs) And there was a- You're halfway there. there. Yeah, just, you know. (laughs) Actually, we kind of felt halfway there because we were in the hallways more than anything else. But- Right. There was a great talk given by Kelsey Hightower, um, who's with CoreOS, where he said that kind of the title was how they bet the company on Go and mm-hmm. how that bet paid off for them was kind of the content of the talk. Yep. And I don't know if you're necessarily you know, betting the company uh, on Ember and Elixir, but it kind of feels like that uh, to a certain degree. It's definitely a bold move to come out and say, this is how we believe um, modern web applications should be built. I'm going to Stop for a sponsor break before you respond to all that setup. Um, we'll hear from a, one of our awesome sponsors, and we come back. I want to talk about that statement and whether or not it feels like you are betting the company. 
All right, put them away. Put them back. Put the books back on the shelf. You don't need them. And learn to code by doing with Code School. Code School offers a variety of courses, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, Ruby, iOS, Git, and many, many more to help you expand your skills and learn new technologies. Code School knows that learning to code can be a daunting task, and they've combined experienced instructors with proven learning techniques to make coding educational and memorable. It gives you the confidence you need to continue past those rough, tough hurdles that you will definitely face learning the code. Code School also knows that languages are a moving target. They're always updating their content to give you the latest and the greatest learning resources. You can even try before you buy. Roughly one out of every five courses on Code School is absolutely and totally free. This includes instructor classes on Git, Ruby, jQuery, and much more, which allow free members to play full courses with coding challenges all included. You can also pay as you go. One monthly fee gives you access to every Code School course, and if you ever need a breather, take a break, you can suspend your account at any time. Don't worry, your account history, your points, your badges, they'll all be there when you're ready to pick things up again. Get started on sharpening your skills today at codeschool.com. Once again, that is codeschool.com. All right, we're back. Brian, does it feel like you're betting the company on Ember? And does it feel like you're betting it on Elixir? I don't think you can ever do that in software, right? Because there's always going to be something new. And you're just one blog post away from changing your mind. From right? a new bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, we decided. We went with uh, framework JavaScript 10.0, whatever. Right. But I, I, so the reasons why, we started as a Rails consultancy. And I, I've been working with Rails since before 1.0. Um, my, my, I think my true talent still lies with Rails and Ruby. I'm probably the most experienced of all the, of all the technologies I have worked with. I'm still the most experienced in Ruby and Rails. The reason why we as a consultancy decided to move away from that was because Rails has become a commodity at this point. It has accomplished what it set out to do. And I think I, I either touched on this on, in the blog post you referred to, or perhaps in our, uh, annual blog posts at the, uh, at the end of last year. Um, we found that we were not able to get the rates that uh, we want to be getting with Rails work. Uh, the market is becoming uh, oversaturated with beginners. That And because Rails has done so well what it set out to do, beginners can really get done maybe 80% of what a senior developer can do. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's that twenty percent that you know makes you really need somebody. World. Yeah, it makes yeah. it makes all the difference. But for getting it, uh, an application up and running, um, that's fine. Scaling the application, different question. Right. Um. So, I I started, and this is where we were poking around with Ember for for a period of time, and I realized that you know this is perhaps a better business move to move over to a client side application. Uh, if this is the way that we feel that the technology is going to swing, then uh, if we can establish ourselves as an expert early on, then maybe we can uh, do something similar to what ThoughtBot or HashRocket or Pivotal did in the Rails space, but we mm-hmm. can do it with Ember. And for the to a certain degree, I think we've accomplished that in the Ember world. We have a pretty good reputation there. Our brand is pretty well recognized. Uh, we have a pretty good team. Um, and I think for the most part, we're, we're pretty well respected in that space. 
however, I don't think that Ember is ever going to rise to the yeah to the is size that, that Rails en- is the world big enough, you know, to be sustainable well, for the, just that I, kind of work. I think the JavaScript world is definitely big enough. Yeah. I think that the JavaScript framework world, though, is too fragmented. Mm-hmm. And Ember's piece of that pie is always going to be decent, and perhaps it may sustain a consultancy a little bit larger than ours. We're at uh, 19 right now. Mm-hmm. could probably sustain a consultancy around 30. But we're interested in really growing, getting big. Uh, so I don't think that Ember alone can do that. Um, we were continuing to build out backends with Rails. And because now we have this super fast client-side application that's running and uh, routing between pages felt instantaneous, the response time of the application, especially when we got into production and started going a little bit under scale, um, any, any, um, any slowdown in response time, any delay was really magnified under those conditions. Uh, so, uh, I, I'd always been following Elixir. I really respect Jose Valim and always seemed very interesting because it gave like this Ruby-like syntax on top of a technology that I've always been peripherally very, very interested in, which is Erlang. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine who um, worked at Basho, uh, Chris Mickeljohn, uh, he has been talking about Erlang for a very long time. Uh, He's like, everyone, you got to try Erlang. So I, I, I looked into it. I'm like, um, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a syntax snob. I think Ruby kind of ruined me in that way. And I saw the syntax, like, oh, I'm out. I can't do this. I just don't feel like it. it it's such a... I just don't feel it, like it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I just don't feel like it. Uh, it's such a weird thing to say that the syntax turned me off. And I think mm-hmm. some people will point and laugh like, ah, oh, that's stupid. But it was true. I, I think a lot of Ruby people tend to think that way. Or Ruby's kind of like ruined our mind. Like we, we desire good syntax, and that's the starting of the conversation for us when it comes to technology. Like this is something I'm living in a lot. Like how is the syntax? Is this going to look ugly? Is this going to be a pain in the butt? Am I going right. to be able to read it? Am I going to be able to teach it? Um, and Erlang's syntax was, uh, I think it's based on Prolog. Maybe it was just I don't know, crazy weird. So, uh, but when Elixir, I think, was getting close to 1.0. I revisited it, and Dave Thomas, I think around the same time, published his Programming Elixir book through PragProg, and he was one of uh, he's one of the authors that got me interested in Ruby in the first place. So I I bought the book. I don't download books. I'm not. I guess I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too old, but I like holding a book. I have a hard time reading PDFs. And uh, I think I read that's it. actually kind of universal. Like, I th- there's, oh, really? Yeah, there's been recent studies, even on like millennials or whatnot and teenagers today, where you know we thought ebooks were going to like take over and just make yep. make paper books irrelevant, but it finds they're just kind of augmenting. They're just another form of transport. People actually do like holding things. I I agree with you, of course. Yeah. Maybe that that could be me also getting ancient, but I think there's some studies behind the fact that that's actually. I think people do have there's a there's something about the physical medium and and the holding of it that's huh. I don't know it's real. But anyways, go on. All right, I'm not alone then. <laughs> You're not alone, definitely. <laughs> but I uh, I read the book. Uh, it was excellent, and in it, Dave even spoke about how he's excited. He's as excited about Elixir as he was when he first started doing Ruby. Mm. So that got me hooked into it. I respect 
Dave Thomas a lot. Uh, and the more I read in the book, the more I'm like, wow, this really makes a lot of sense to me because I was never, I was never a Ruby developer who really got into the design pattern craziness. Mm -hmm. And I actually found that, um, design patterns to a certain degree were being overused, overexploited, were misused quite a bit and actually tended to do more damage in certain projects where you had like a lot of beginners were just taught patterns like do this pattern and that's yeah. what beginners get right they they like to have like here's my rules but they would just the pattern would become the hammer yeah like and which pattern would, am i, I going to use here instead of right. like how do i solve this problem like which pattern exactly. should i use mm -hmm. so we as a shop we inherited projects from consultancies or from freelancers or from existing teens and we saw this all the time and it became actually very difficult to follow and and build off of properly so what was nice that not that to say that Elixir or Erlang doesn't have patterns, but it functional programming feels far more simplistic than object-oriented programming does. Uh, object-oriented programming, I think, obfuscates a lot of what's going on, whereas functional programming is like literally here's the data flowing through, mm -hmm. and you can just follow it. And for me, that I really kind of clung on to that concept. And oh, by the way, it's significantly faster. It's orders of magnitude faster than Ruby. Uh, it doesn't consume nearly as much memory. It's already set up for multi-core consumption and distributed code. So all those things were really nice to have as well. I've never really done any distributed uh, application development before. I can't say that I have done real Elixir distributed application development mm -hmm. yet, other than some of the examples in the Prog book. But to know that I have this tool under my belt that has 30 years of ex of like of experience in building out huge distributed systems um, is really nice to have and definitely something that I want to explore more in the, in the next year. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I've I had similar interest in Elixir and we've had um, Chris McCord on uh, recently, who's the author yep. of the Phoenix framework, and he kind of did a good job of selling uh, the idea that it's something worth looking into. And um, for me, I'm still very interested in it, but where I kind of like anytime there's something that's just built on top of another language, you know, it just feels like it's always going to be like a hobby or it's, it's, I don't know. There's something like, it feels like the longevity is not guaranteed. Whereas like mm -hmm. Erlang itself, you know, was built way back in the eighties, I think, or I don't know when it started, but way back in the day and it's been around for years and it's so mm -hmm. you know mature. And, um, you know, I, I respect Jose Valim quite a bit. It's just as like you do. Um, and so this isn't a knock on him or his idea or anything, but does it, does it feel like it's just a bolt on to a thing that already, you know, that's established or does it feel like it's its own yeah. thing? It definitely feels like it's its own. Mm -hmm. And also it's from what I've heard at, um, I think it's called Erlang factory, which is like the big Erlang a conference. Oh, okay. Uh, I think oh, I, I think it's a I think there's actually consultancy, but I think they have a conference annually. I think you're right, yeah. And I could be wrong. Someone may say you're wrong, Brian, but I I seem to Erling Factory pops up in my head. But anyway, uh, I heard that there's a growing number of Elixir attendees, like a significant number of Elixir attendees that are being attracted uh, to the conference because Elixir is like this gateway drug, and Erling has always had kind of a not a closed community. It's definitely not closed, but it's um, it's been more of an academic language mm -hmm. and used for those purposes than Ruby or 
JavaScript or Python have been used for web application development. And now uh, Elixir has kind of thrown open the doors to the masses, right? Mm. It's this very approachable language built on great technology. And I wouldn't be surprised if more people are doing Elixir than are going to be doing um, Erlang. Uh, yeah, you're going to be doing Erlang. It's not, I, I don't think that the analogy of like Elixir to Erlang is the same as uh, JRuby to Java, JVM. Um, I don't think that, I never dreamed that J, J, JRuby would ever overtake Java world in any way. Yeah. Um, it always kind of felt like this. And no knock against the JRuby team because those are like Charles Nutter, super smart guy. And like yeah. the, the way that they built that out is amazing. But it always kind of felt like this halfway world between Ruby and Java. Whereas Elixir definitely feels like its own thing onto itself. Like that you not only get uh, this nice uh, language and I say language with quotes around it because it's very more of a, um, it's like a parser. And then most of Elixir standard library is written in Elixir itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, even certain things like if statements are written in Elixir because mm. it will just uh, parse it and then it gets access to the, uh, to the uh, to the AST and that gets exported to Beam, and this is uh, so you can augment the language any way that you want, which you know can be good or bad. In fact, in Chris's book, Chris McCord's book, uh, the Meta Programming for for Elixir book, he sets out some rules of macro development, and like I think the first one was don't write macros, and I, the second <laughs> one may also be don't write macros. And so it's you know and then he shows macros, you how to write macros after that. Yeah, the rest of the book is writing macros, but <laughs> but it's you know it it's one of those things that um, it's a very powerful feature that is core to Elixir. But do you really want to go down the road of building out like all these language features? They'll be non-standard. People that are joining the project won't know what it is. Uh, versus perhaps working with the language itself. But if you need to do something, if you need to to grasp that power, it's there if you need it. Another aspect of Elixir that, you know, just questions that I have around it, uh, especially from the, the perspective of what you said with Dockyard, is you're trying to grow a large consultancy, mm-hmm. um, is access to people who are good at it. Um, you know, for perspective hires for you or developers that could, you know, build your backends out. Um, yeah. Has that been an issue or do you see that being an issue down the road? For hiring uh, Elixir developers or yeah. just Ember? Mm-hmm. Elixir specifically, so, yeah. We have had, um, I wouldn't say that anybody in the shop right now is a dedicated Elixir developer. Okay. Uh, majority of our contracts that over the past year have come our way have actually been specifically client-side application development with, mm-hmm. that, with Ember. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, I'd say the most common case would be that, it, it's actually interesting because now that we've, we've done so well in the Ember world, I think a lot of clients that come to us actually don't know that we can do back-end development. Yeah. And so they've actually gone out, in many cases, hired a separate team to do the back-end. Uh, a lot of the time, it's Rails or something else. Mm-hmm. And I asked them why they, why they, why they did that, why they just come to us. and like, oh, we, didn't, we thought you guys were just Ember. And so we're hoping to establish ourselves in the same way that we did with Ember mm-hmm. from, a, from a marketing perspective, right? And that's going to require us to um, uh, start releasing open source for, for Phoenix and Elixir 
uh, start really blogging about our experience with it, uh, start getting some example client projects, case studies on how perhaps we rewrote a particular backend that was pre-existing in Phoenix and what type of advantages and disadvantages were there. That's going to take some time. Um, but I think that anytime a, a consultancy engages heavily in a new technology and gets involved with the growth and community of that technology, uh, they put themselves in a really good position to benefit from it if, if that technology ends up doing well. Right. Uh, I think Ember's done well in Ember 2.0, and especially Ember 2.1, because 2.0 is more like the transition. We remove all the deprecations from 113. 2.1 is when we get a lot of new, nice new stuff. Um, that's going to, I think, see a, a lot higher rate of adoption because the, the barrier of entry to Ember is being knocked down all the time with every new release. They're, they're just making it easier and easier to get into Ember. So now Ember CLI is actually, it's, we hit the, they, they did lockstep versioning. So we're at 113. We went from 0 0.2 to 113 overnight. Um, but the barrier of entry for Ember is getting smaller. So uh, Ember is going to become more adoptable, and because Dockyard is in a good position, we'll benefit from that. Yeah. Uh, I think that Phoenix and Elixir are really good technologies, and uh, as especially the closer Phoenix gets to 1.0, um, we'll see an increase in uh, in uh, momentum. And if we can position ourselves in such a way that oh, Dockyard is a good consultancy for building out Phoenix applications, then we'll benefit from that as well. So we kind of have this two pronged approach where Establishing sure we're, I guess, like you said early on, betting on a yeah. client-side application uh, framework and betting on a backend technology, both of which are, Ember's not exactly new at this point, but right. um, Phoenix is definitely new. Yeah, I mean, back, back, I can't remember when it was, when you decided or when you posted about Ember, you know, your guys' new focus on Ember. I remember reading mm -hmm. that post and thinking, I had tried Ember at the time, and um, I was dabbling with the different, you know, clients at NBC things as well and just trying to see like where do I go where do I invest myself as a as a developer to um you know to produce good quality product and to make myself a mm -hmm. viable person in the you know next five years or whatever and to me I mean I was turned on to Ember because of the people behind it like I they you know they come from the Ruby land and uh yeah all that and I respect Yehuda and we've had him on the show multiple times um Ember data was so immature at the time that it felt like Ember was mostly promises back then, like good promises, but like there wasn't much substance behind. Like I could tell, man, right. there's so much work to do before this is awesome. Um, and then I kind of looked into Angular, and Angular was more productive immediately, and so I had like a six month love affair with Angular. Yeah. And then I kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of faded on that a little bit. But um, now with Ember 2.0, and it seems like Ember's finally here. But is that is that safe to say? Like Ember's now arrived, and it, it wasn't really. Like you guys probably had a lot of shoring up to do around yeah. it back then. Is that Ember's been slowly arriving for yeah. a while now, right? <laughs> it's like this <laughs> it's like this massive ship that's coming in the harbor yeah. being pulled along by a tiny tugboat or something. I don't right. know. I don't, that might be a bad analogy. But yeah, it, it does. I, I I've said uh several times that I actually think that Ember two point is really Ember one point Hmm. Uh in many ways, like 1.0 being like the, hey, we're, you know, this is the direction that we want to go in. Ember 1.0, I think that they they reached some place of stability and they wanted to get a 1.0 out there to start seeing adoption and use cases come in. And so that 
the use cases have really driven the direction of Ember. I think it will continue to drive the direction of Ember, but uh, it significantly drove the direction of Ember between 1.0 and 2.0. While there, I'm going to say it was almost all, like it was mostly semantically versioned uh, yeah. between 1.0 and 2.0. Um, I would debate on whether or not it was 100%, but I, I think for the most part, amongst most open source projects, it was probably the closest to being like as perfect semantically version as you can get. But um, the direction changed quite a bit, or they, they at least found the right use cases for pushing in one direction versus the other. Um, I think that 2.0 is really going to be the version that people look at and say, okay, this is something that we can build something in. Uh, this is something that... Um, is competitive with the other frameworks that are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have the fast rendering em- engine with Glimmer. We have the client-side application tool with Ember CLI. Uh, we're reducing, oh, I shouldn't say we, but uh, the core team is reducing uh, the barrier of entry by just cutting out the fat. Uh, the innumerable, uh, many of the innumerable tools that were in Ember were just removed. So why have all these uh, array prototype stuff right. uh, if you can just depend upon Lodash? They'd be a better citizen in the JavaScript community, leverage the tools that are out there rather than rewriting them. Yeah. Uh, controllers are still in 2.0, but they've really been kind of, you know, mums the word on controllers. But uh, object controller, array controller have been pulled out. Um, it's just going to really simplify the amount of things people have to learn yeah. within Ember. What I will say, though, is that it has also increased the barrier of entry from before you ever get to Ember. So... Now people need to be an effective Ember developer um, or the quote-unquote Ember way of doing things. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to really understand ES6, ES7-ish type stuff, right. uh, ES6 modules. You'll have to, uh, if you want to debug certain stuff, you're going to have to start understanding how the build process works for Ember CLI. So I think the complexity of knowledge has been shifted off of the framework and more to the tooling. Mm. And hopefully that will start to simplify and normalize, especially as browsers begin to implement many of these ES6 features and um, Ember CLI itself becomes, uh, uh, you know, built out even more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're definitely seeing the maturation of, of Ember. And I think even, uh, the maturation of client side MVC, you know, one thing I want to talk about, we're going to take our second sponsor break. When we come back, um, I want to talk about, you know, you guys said this new website's built how we believe modern web apps should be built with Ember and, and, and Phoenix. I want to talk about the technical aspects of dockyard.com because, uh, traditionally in the last few years, uh, you know, single page apps or client side MVC frameworks where they've really shined is, you know, dashboards, um, heavily interactive visuals, like anywhere where you're chilling on the same page for a long time and you're just loading new data in. But where they haven't is on content sites. It's kind of been the web app versus website debate. Um, yep. And the interesting thing about dockyard.com is, I mean, it's effectively a content site and it's not a dashboard. It's not a rich, I mean, it's a rich UI, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, yeah. And so like... It's not an application. It's not an application. It's a website, right? But, and yet you still think that Ember and and Phoenix and that separation uh, is the way that these should be being built. So I think there's been some advances. You mentioned Glimmer and, and some other things. I think we'll talk about some of the technical details of the website uh, when we get back. HipChat is a game changer for team communication. 
It helps you and your team get the information you need faster than email and reduces meaningless meetings. Teams that use HipChat are able to make faster decisions and get more work done with group chat, video chat, and file sharing. HipChat is a great solution for distributed teams by letting you take the office with you no matter where you go. iPhone, Android, Mac OS, it's all there. HipChat is easy to use and gets everyone working in real time. And right now, HipChat is offering listeners of the changelog 90 days of HipChat Plus totally free. Get premium features like unlimited file storage, unlimited message history, and guaranteed support totally for free for 90 days. Visit hipchat.com slash changelog. Again, that's hipchat.com slash changelog. Get your team started using HipChat Plus today. Go and check them out. All right, Brian, let's talk about the technical details of Dockyard.com, how it was built, uh, how Ember and Phoenix work together, and you know, take me through it, uh, deployment, all the goodies, all the technicals. So the uh, previous, I'd say, two or three iterations of our website were built in Rails, mm-hmm. and we were no longer really doing Rails. Um, I, I think that if we're in our blog posts, in our open source, in our presentations, telling people that you should be using this technology, we kind of have to dog food it. We have to walk that walk. We have to say, okay, we think you should be using this technology because we use it mm-hmm. rather than just maybe using middleman or some sort of static uh, site generator. Yep. So we set out to rebuild and redesign uh, Docker.com around uh, Ember in Phoenix. It was a little bit of a bumpy road. Um, mostly because we were trying to use some really edge technology uh, in the Ember world. Uh, Specifically, uh, this new thing that was just released uh, at the time called Fastboot. Actually, I don't even think it was like production-ready released. Uh, So Fastboot was or is Ember's solution for server-side rendering of your Ember application for the purposes of uh, SEO. Right. It was built by Tom and Yehuda, and they were sponsored by Bustle, uh, which is a company, I think, in New York, I want to say. Hmm. Maybe wrong. But anyway, uh, and they've actually leveraged a lot of the work they did on Fastboot uh, to build out the Glimmer rendering engine in Ember. So it had some you know, very high-impact uh, benefits uh, doing, that, doing that particular feature. So... so Fastboot would actually uh, take your Ember application and boot it up in Node. And so when you hit it, uh, when you hit the request, um, it will uh, render out your Ember application server-side, serve it up to you as a server-side rendered application, and then and it would be there, and then Ember would launch in your browser, and I think the process they called it is hydrate the DOM. Hmm. And so it would just kind of realize that this is already... Um, a Ember generated application, and we're just going to kind of latch onto it and take over, so we don't have to re redo everything. Uh, that was the theory. In reality, what we saw was that, but uh, Fastboot at the time had some really ugly uh, uh, memory leaks in it, and so we, like most memory leaks, they did not come up until after production. <laughs> right. Docker dot com. Always bench. Mark your applications, I guess, or stress test them. All right. But we were too, we were so excited to get it out. Um, so uh, 
we we had to pull back and what we actually I think actually Dockyard someone may say, hey, we have one up before, but I I'm pretty sure that Dockyard.com was the first production fast food application out there. Um, it may still only be the one of the only ones out there. And what we've done to solve the memory leak issues was we're still using fast food, but uh, when we deploy a new application, it will actually send it to our backend server as well. We use our sitemap to walk through and generate all the static templates okay. uh, with Fastboot. And then those static templates sit behind Nginx. Nginx serves up you know, them up through its cache. Mm-hmm. And so we get the benefits of the SEO, um, but it's not as smooth as Fastboot would be. But it's still a very fast website. Like Even though we're... Um, still using Ember. And that was a complaint people always had, like, oh, Ember's so fat, uh, Ember's slow to load. Right. If you go to docker.com, I think on average it loads up in like 0.75, uh, 0.75 seconds, uh, which is pretty quick for a client-side application. We were able to shrink down our asset size, I believe, to close to 200K, somewhere around there, which is pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We like our, our blog actually sits in a database. And so when you hit the blog, this is being served up by Phoenix. And it's, I believe, the whole almost pa- all the pages. The whole page yeah. or just the data? The whole page? All the data. So the data. if you were mm-hmm. to, um, if you look at your like a network tab, you can see the data coming in. So right. this is all being served up by, all of our data is being served up by Phoenix. Uh, I think most of the content pages actually sit in the database. Like all of our team members sit in the database. So so uh, we have Phoenix acting as this like dumb AP, dumb API mm-hmm. that's just being serving up data, and then Ember is our is our client side, and um, we don't we haven't heard any drawbacks from from doing it this way. We haven't heard have any people saying like oh, um, and, and, you know, we get the occasional like oh you should support non JavaScript browser type troll stuff, but um, we don't really pay attention to that way of thinking anymore. Um, but it, it's it's a very fast website. Like switching between pages is very fast, and that that's what I want out of an application. And mm-hmm. so that's why I say that we feel that this is the way to build it because speed and response time is, a, I think, becoming a very very important concern for usability and the user experience of any application. So we chose a framework and a backend technology that gave us the best speed as well as being, I think fits best into our uh, our sensibilities as engineers. Yeah, so when you navigate pages, I mean, there's no hash, you know, hashtag in the URL or anything. You've got your URLs are clean. Is that still, Ember's doing all that routing, correct? Correct. So is that uh, just a feature of newer browsers? Uh, does that work on everything? Um, yeah, so I think um, we might be using autolocation, actually, and... In Ember, autolocation will detect whether or not you have the uh, the history API okay. in your whether or not that's available to your browser. And if it does, it'll give us this nice clean, you know, URLs. If it doesn't, it'll fall back to the hashtag. Okay. Go to the hash hash version. Right. I think like IE ten below. Uh, I, I think like IE nine, IE eight stuff. They may fall back. But most evergreen browsers now, I believe, are all or all evergreen browsers are actually uh, uh, history API. So, what is auto location? Is that a library? Is that a part of Ember proper? It's part of Ember. So, if you were to go to 
if you were to generate a new Ember application with the Ember CLI, mm-hmm. I think it's in the uh, config environment file. There may be something about location and then it's set to auto. Um, I think it's, I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head. Sure. I, I think it may be there, but that's where uh, Ember's router will decide what type of URLs it's going to generate through its uh, links. Yeah, I just found the the page. We'll link that up in the show notes. It says Ember Auto Location will select the best location option based off browser support with the priority order history and then hash and then none. Yep. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, awesome. So you're kind of using a modified fast boot, or you're using a, a we're using regular fast boot, but we're not allowing public access to it. Gotcha. So Nginx is only serving up our cached generated templates right now you kind of crawl it and, yourselves on deploy type of a thing correct okay so it's a little bit of an engineering you know what we would call maybe a hack to a certain degree until fastboot you know can can do it on its own or it's just in service of even faster boot it was a hack to <laughs> okay. get us around the memory leak issue right. however as of this past monday stefan penner on the core team uh believes he may have closed out all the remaining memory leaks on fastboot nice we're not so he wants us to uh, move dockyard.com over to regular fastboot. I told him we're probably going to do that sometime in August. Yeah, see what happens. That would be definitely interesting. Um, gosh, what else about this? So just perusing it myself, it definitely loads fast. I mean, initial load is slower, and then, but it's still pretty fast. And then obviously your, your page navigation is super fast. Um, and I know that you're using it kind of as like we're we're investing in these technologies. We're going to use these technologies. Does it, is it possibly over-engineered for what you guys are trying to accomplish with your website? It's uh over-engineered content site for sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I don't, I, if someone approached us and said, we want to build a content site. You wouldn't build it this way. No, not no. unless they had a very specific reason for doing so. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like where I've, where I've been is, you know, I'm trying to see like, when does it become, the way to build everything, right? I still feel like mm. there's still use cases and there's still what are you trying to accomplish and let's build the website the way that makes the most sense for your for your goals. And I think you guys have done that with this because you're, you know, because you are a company that does this and you want to help, you're, you're kind of pushing the bleeding edge to a certain degree with helping out with fast boot, helping out with these things and showing off what you guys are capable of in a good way. Um, but probably, you know, as far as, about time and money and all that for the for the goals of a content site still unless it has some specific needs you know a static site generator or something simpler is probably still the way to go at least you know july 2015 agree with that um i think so for the most part i i do think that um there's also something to consider around uh those that don't have as great internet access mm-hmm. as as we do in the United States, or if I'm not sure where you are, but mm-hmm. on the East Coast, I think we have the best, at least the shortest distance to everything. And um, if you're somewhere in Africa and you're reading a very content-heavy site, do you really want to have to re-download the entire page on every single click, or is it going to be more performant to just download perhaps right. uh, the data set? So I think I think context matters, right. and uh, the the concept and architecture of a client side application uh, really works well for many use cases that mm-hmm. could be content-driven sites. But yeah. um, as far as like a shop site, like if 
we weren't an Ember shop, then we probably wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I feel like we're, you know, we're breaking down barriers, like the SEO barriers broken down, and, you know, to a certain degree, the URL cleanness barriers starting to be broken down. And yeah, context always matters. Um, so I could see where, as long as you get, I mean, sometimes on a slow connection, you don't get that official, you know, that initial download never happens. And then you're like, well, um, so it, it, it's give or take, but uh, yeah. awesome. Anything else about Ember or Elixir or yeah. uh, that? I'll say, I'll say, Go ahead. I'll say one last thing about Ember. Okay. So um, uh, another really nice feature that's coming soon is that um, a developer from LinkedIn is working on this. Mm-hmm. We will have the ability to create uh, even smaller uh, versions of Ember pretty soon. So right now with ES6 modules, um, we're doing like import statements at the top and we import a specific module. What's going to be coming pretty soon through Ember CLI is the ability to walk that import tree and only uh, transpile the specific modules that we're using. So right now when we when we import Ember, we get the entire Ember thing, right? Mm-hmm. And in the future, we're going to say like import Ember-get, import Ember-component. If we don't use like the evented uh, service for whatever reason, then we won't have that in our final uh, asset output. Mm-hmm. And so our, our footprints can be significantly smaller. So people's, people's issue with the size of Ember yeah. uh, should pretty much be going away uh, soon enough. That's great. Then the, then the size of your asset bundle kind of scales up with the size of your application. How much of the features are you actually using? You know, you get bigger yep. and bigger, but for those people that just want to take advantage of the routing and the, um, the other niceties, you have a smaller bundles. That'll be excellent. Any idea on timing around that, those kind of uh, progress? Uh, I think that's a, when it's done, a feature, <laughs> but it, I know that they're actively working on it because it's a big concern for LinkedIn. Right. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's take a moment to do our awesome closing questions. Um, got two of them for you here. And the first one is, uh, one that we ask quite often is that if you had to pick somebody out there, you could have more than one if you need to, but if you had to pick a programming hero, somebody to look up to, uh, who would that be and why? Um, I'd probably pick a, uh, he just left Dockyard, but, uh, Robert Jackson. Uh, he is a core team member of Ember and, in the year and a half ish time that he was at Dockyard, uh, the guy just super impressed me with his ability to not just get things done, but also remember things. Like he's got mm-hmm. like a, um, he can recall. I, 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 like when I work on code, I'm familiar with what I worked on, and I kind of go. If I don't touch it for a month, I gotta go back and kind of familiarize myself with it. He just immediately remembers exactly what he was like, what it was. He can tell you everything and. Like that that level of uh, recall just super impressive. I think yeah. uh, he 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 was uh, excellent to work with. Very cool. I'm definitely gonna link him up in the show notes. And uh, I had never heard of Robert Jackson, so I'll be uh, checking him out. Uh, the, I think he's the number one committer on Ember right now. What is so, so he moved on from Dockyard? Where is he moving on to? Does he have plans or kind of? I think the name of the company is Aptable. Okay. I think uh, they. I'm not sure if I'm really, I think they're, I think they've brought their product out, but they're, they're kind of doing Heroku for healthcare. Hmm. So like a big problem with healthcare companies on Heroku is the compliancy. Yeah. And I think that they're trying to solve that problem for platform as a service, uh, healthcare applications. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, uh, 
that's a big market if you can get it. Cool. Uh, next one is what's on your open source radar? We've obviously talked a lot of different open source projects, and feel free to you know mention ones that you're up to personally or that Dockyard's doing. But if you had a free weekend and you were going to just play with something new and exciting that has your eye, what would it be? Um. I actually have to do the opposite. I have to stop playing with stuff because <laughs> I, I got, I got, I get, I got like developer ADD uh-huh. and I get onto too much stuff. I mean, that is probably part of the reason why I pushed my company in the direction I have yeah. rather than taking a safe bet and let's keep doing rails. Okay. Um, I mean, if there's something I want to do more, more stuff with distributed code yeah. and Elixir. Cool. I don't, I don't have a specific library for that though. Cool, cool. Speaking of uh, Dockyard and Elixir and open source, I noticed you guys have a library out there for testing Phoenix JSON APIs called Voorhees. Any other cool open source, you know, GitHub projects that you are, or Dockyard's up to that you want to uh, give a shout out to? I have like a twenty-five percent completed Elixir. Uh, they're called applications in Elixir; they're not libraries. Okay. But I think that that's a that's a uh, uh, Erlang term. Okay. Um, which still feels a little weird to me, but I have one that um it's kind of like a fixture library for um well for for Phoenix well Phoenix applications, Elixir applications. Um it's gonna have a very simple DSL for declaring fixtures. Hmm. Got a name for it? I just have it called fixtures right now. It's called <laughs> it's fixtures. Not, yeah, it's not very creative. All right. Cool. Well, um, distracted searching for it on your github is it still you're working on it also only 25 percent done you got to get to at least you know 60 percent done then you put it online you know yeah and then i i only bring it through about 70 percent of it yeah. and then i i move on to something else yeah then you find a maintainer <laughs> <laughs> uh well brian thanks so much for joining us i really enjoyed uh, picking your brain on all these things um how can people reach you out there on the internet uh probably don't want to follow me on twitter but you want to check out at dockyard on twitter okay uh we put all of our stuff on there we actually just finished so we host uh, we hosted a conference wicked good ember conf in june we had uh, uh about 200 people there we were on an island so we we talk about that experience we uh, we, uh mentioned our blog post through our twitter account uh that's probably the easiest way to kind of I guess catch up with what what i'm up to cool very cool well, as always, links are in the show notes. Uh, you can find those at changelog.com slash 165. We also want to thank all of our members and our awesome sponsors for making this show possible. This week's sponsors are CodeShip, CodeSchool, and HipChat. As I said before, we have a bunch of awesome shows in the works. Uh, some of those are Mesosphere, Prometheus, NEJSConf, Crystal, BoltDB, Editor Wars, and a whole lot more. So if you haven't hit that subscribe button yet, why not? Remember, we have an open inbox on github.com slash thechangelog slash ping. Give us a shout there with your show ideas, entering projects that you have or that you've created, or just say hi. We love hearing from you. And I want to announce that we're, we're going to become a crystal uh, development shop tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, breaking news. Yeah, it's breaking news. Crystal is the new hotness. Very cool. It does look, it does look like a cool technology. I'm though. excited for that show. I, we're very interested in it. That should be a good one. But until next time, let's go ahead and say goodbye. See ya. Oh, goodbye. <laughs>